All right. Good evening, everybody. Um, I hope you've had a good day, and I hope you've been able to stay warm because, well, uh, it's it's weird. Last time, last week, I was rejoicing uh, because I could um, have short sleeves, and then this week, well, we've got a jacket on. Well, I guess that's Africa for you, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, um, can you guys please let me know in the comments if the audio is okay? That's why I started this a minute earlier, is uh, just to give a chance for some feedback about that. So if you don't mind uh, letting me know there, uh, that'll be awesome. I see Christina says she's loving this cold weather. Yeah, I don't know, eh? <laughs> I'm more built for the for the warmer climate, so yeah. <laughs> All right, that's good to hear. Thanks, brother. And yeah, I hope everybody has a blanket handy. Um, so last week we uh, ended off in chapter two and verse thirteen. So this week we'll obviously start off in verse 14, but uh, I think before we jump in, let's just bow our heads and we can pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are with us tonight. Lord, thank you that you've sent us this wonderful rain that we've had today. That that was amazing, Lord, and it's so wonderful to see, and it's amazing to see all the uh, new blossoms and everything from springtime. Lord, thank you so, so much um, that we can see your hand in nature. Lord, and there's always a new beginning, and that, and that is fantastic to see. Lord, will you please bless this lesson tonight? Will you come and teach us, Lord? Uh, show us what you need us to do and, and what we should do about whatever we're going to learn tonight. And, uh, Lord, will you please guide this and may this glorify your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, like I said, um, we ended off in verse 13 of chapter 2. So I think let's just read verse 12 and verse 13, uh, just to remind ourselves of the context there. Verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And we said last week, working out your salvation, it's, it's, it's talking about sanctification, right? Verse 13, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And then verse 14, that's where we'll start tonight. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Yes, you read that right. <laughs> do all things without murmurings and disputings. Now, I think that, that Paul is specifically, specifically talking about the attitude that all believers should have while working out their salvation, like, like we saw in verse 13. And I think it is fine to use this as a sort of, uh, call it an umbrella term, to refer to both internal and external complaining or murmuring. The reason I say that is that, well, I think all complaining actually starts in the heart, doesn't it? If your heart isn't in the right place, you know, focused on what needs to be done to, to get rid of a specific sin or to be obedient towards God, then there won't be any complaints. Instead, you would rejoice in the opportunity to serve God and, and to do what He has told you to do. But I think instead we, we complain about, oh, it's so hard and I don't have time and this and that. But just a few verses ago, Paul spoke about how Jesus humbled Himself 
and how that how that should be our attitude towards the things of God and to towards our fellow believers. And so when you have something to do for God, folks, don't complain about it. Not to yourself or to anybody else. And don't argue with people while you're doing it. You know, humble yourselves and esteem others as better than yourself, as, as we saw earlier in this chapter. Then I guess this will be less of a problem. Look at verse 15. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Now, to be blameless means that nobody should be able to point the finger at you and criticize you uh, because of sin, any kind of sin or evil. And similarly, to be harmless means that you should not be causing harm to anybody or behaving in an offensive way um, before them. We should be living the way that you would think the the sons of God would live, as as he says here. Because that is what you are, right? If you are saved, you are a child of God. We don't want visitors to come to the church or unbelievers to look at us and think, yeah, well, that's just a bunch of hypocrites. Look at how they complain about everything and they argue amongst each other. Oh, no, I want nothing to do with this. We don't, we don't want them to think that way. We should have a good testimony amongst ourselves and also in the world. Because the world we live in is, is crooked and perverse. It really doesn't take much to see that, folks. <laughs> but we should be as, as shining lights in this dark place. We should not be guilty of the same sins as this world. It doesn't matter how you grew up or what you were taught. If it is causing harm to your testimony or to the testimony of the church, which is the bride of Christ, right? Well, then you should cut it out. It's not worth pursuing. Verse 16. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Now, to hold forth the word means to hold it out or to offer it for others to take. And so Paul says to hold forth the word of life. And the word of life is, of course, the gospel. That is how you get life. That is how you get placed in Christ and receive eternal life. We should be offering the gospel to others. Because if you think about it, well, somebody brought it to you, right? If you are saved. And so it only makes sense to pass this wonderful free gift on to other people. So if you want to let your light shine in this dark, crooked, perverse world, you should be blameless, you should be harmless, you should be without rebuke, and you should be holding forth the word of life so that others can partake in it. Paul says, um, where is that? That I may rejoice... Oh, sorry, I, I lost my place here. Ah, there you go. Verse 16. That I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. It all wasn't just wasted effort so that he can rejoice. And you will remember back in verse 2, he said, fulfill ye my joy. (laughs) He wants to rejoice in them uh, and in this ministry. And and I believe that that is the the desire 
of every preacher, every teacher, every pastor, every discipleship or disciple maker. We want to see our disciples pushing forward, not conforming to the world, but rather be as shining lights within this world. Verse 17. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Now, as we discussed when we looked at uh, chapter 1, Paul wasn't sure at this point if he was going to keep on living or die. He expected that he would continue on living because he knew that it would be better for them, for the Philippians, um, since he could help them grow in their faith. Just uh, turn back to chapter 1 and verse 20, uh, 24. We'll just see that there quickly. Just one page back. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. And so he says here in chapter 2 and verse 17 that even if he needed to be offered up so that they could serve Christ better, then he would rejoice in that. He would be, he, he would be glad. And you see, he was willing to be totally spent so that others could get closer to Christ. And he would keep on working towards that goal so that he could rejoice with them in the day of Christ. And so he says in verse 18, For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. So Paul wants them to rejoice with him, even if he dies, so that, he could be, so that they could be better servants of Christ. Verse 19, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send the Mothia shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. Paul really loved these believers. And as we already saw in chapter 1 and verse 8, he, re he was really longing um, after them. He really wanted to see them again. Now, we see here in verse 24 that Paul was expecting to go to, uh, to the Philippians himself shortly. But he hoped that, he, that Timothy would be able to go there first and even return to let Paul know how it was going with them. Now, I'll encourage you to go look at a map, and I, I think I'll do that um, maybe in the next lesson or the lesson after that. Just show you a map so that you can appreciate the distance between Rome and Philippi and what these guys had to go through to, to actually travel that distance. But Paul was only waiting until he knew how it would go with him, whether he would be released or not before sending Timothy out. Now, Timothy was Paul's co-worker in the gospel. At this point, he has been with Paul for, uh, give or take, 10 years. We read in Acts chapter 16 how he first joined Paul, um, just a few verses before Paul was actually called to go to Macedonia, which is the region uh, where the Philippians were. And we read, the, we read there in Acts chapter 16 and verse 2, that Timothy already had a great testimony among the believers at Iconium and Lystra, which was uh, Timothy's hometown. And I think that is probably a big part of the reason why Paul took Timothy along on this journey and, and um, well, on, all, on his journeys. I mean, you wouldn't expect Paul to train somebody to be his right-hand man if that man already had a bad testimony amongst the people, right? Now, a little further in Acts chapter 16 and verse 12, we read how Timothy went with Paul to Macedonia. So, he was with Paul when, when he started the church at Philippi. 
which means, of course, that the Philippians knew who Timothy was, and some of them um, probably knew him personally. Now, Paul knew, uh, knew Timothy before Acts chapter 16 even, since he was the one that actually led Timothy to Christ. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 2 how he calls Timothy my own son in the faith. But Timothy was no stranger to the, to the Bible. Now, bear in mind that the Bible at that time uh, consisted only of the Old Testament scriptures as we have them today. But both his mother and his grandmother taught him the scriptures from a very young age. Now, that in turn made it easier for him um, to actually be saved when Paul came along and preached the gospel to him because he already had that basis, that, that good knowledge of the scripture. Just turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3 quickly. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'll just give you a few seconds to, to get there. Man, I should actually have a sound effect of pages turning <laughs> so that I know when you're done. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 14. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So the Old Testament scriptures <coughs> sorry, the Old Testament scriptures is able to make you wise unto salvation. It it I almost want to say it gives you a leg up, but no, I'm I'm, I'm careful in saying that. But yeah. Uh, but folks, let this be an encouragement to those of you that are parents and grandparents today. It's never a waste to teach your children the scriptures. Never. You only set them up for success. Now, we don't brainwash them, you know, as some atheists accuse us of doing. Rather, we teach them the truth of God's word. And we also teach them to think for themselves. We don't want them to become mindless robots that try to obey the word because they, well, they think they should. And they have no real reason why. And neither does the Lord want that. We want them to love the Lord and to serve Him because they love Him. We want them to obey Him because they love Him. And we, we pray, man, we pray a ton for our children um, so that they would put their faith and their trust in Christ to be saved as soon as they are able to understand the gospel. But all right, back in, uh, back in Philippians 2 and verse 19, Paul says that he, that he hopes to send Timothy to them uh, shortly because he wanted to be comforted by hearing how it was going with the Philippians. Now, isn't that exactly what all of us do, you know, when we long after somebody? You know, there has been very few times, actually, that I myself left home by myself since I got married. Now, there, there have been times, but um, for work or, or maybe just to go hunting um, or whatever it may be. But I've been blessed enough to be able to keep it to a minimum. But man, when I do, uh, when, when I do go away, I really long after my family. Oh, man, I really do. And I take every opportunity I have to send them a message or, or to just make a phone call, just to hear their voices. And sometimes I, I, I don't really know what to say because I've, I've said it all in the previous phone call. <laughs> 
But I just want that connection. But Paul didn't have a phone. <laughs> so he had to send somebody over to the Philippians to travel that distance so, um, so that he could hear how it was going with them. But he chose Timothy for that job for a very specific reason. Verse 20. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. Now that sounds a little bit strange, doesn't it? Uh, was there really nobody else that Paul could send that would naturally care for the state of the Philippians? Now I think it's important to understand here that Paul wasn't trying to belittle anybody, anybody else. I mean, of course, there were other faithful servants of, of the Lord in Rome. I mean, we have Epaphroditus, who we're going to read about in a few verses, um, that was there, or even other believers. We read in, we read in chapter 1 and verse 17 that uh, they were people that preached Christ out of love. But you see, Timothy was different. Timothy had been with Paul for many years at this point, and as you can imagine, over the course of those years, Timothy um, became or came to think like Paul, and in some ways, he perhaps acted like Paul. He learned how to pray like Paul and, and to trust the Lord like him because he had that example uh, right before his eyes for those years. In 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 16, Paul taught the Corinthians the following. I'll just read this for you. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. That's what Timothy did. For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. That's First Corinthians 4 and verse 16 and 17. You see, Timothy was able to handle situations like Paul would have handled them and to teach them as he would. So Timothy was the best substitute for Paul in Philippi. He followed Paul as Paul followed Christ. And so Paul knew that Timothy would care just as much for the Philippians as he would himself. And he trusted Timothy with that ministry there. Look at verse 21. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. So that, that was the problem. It wasn't that there was a lack of people to send to Philippi, but rather that there was a lack of people that were single-mindedly seeking to glorify Christ. It seems as if many preachers at Rome uh, perhaps became worldly and, and self-centered, despite the fact that Paul was there with them, constantly teaching them and constantly being a good example to them. Now, I don't think that Paul means that they became heretics and then started to proclaim a different gospel or anything like that, because he would have mentioned that. He does that in other places. Uh, he does mention what that has happened. But rather, unlike Timothy, these guys stopped to primarily seek out the things of Jesus Christ. They started to love the world and, and, and the things of this world. And we actually have a good example of this uh, in Demas. This man was once a dependable co-worker of Paul. And Paul even mentions him in the letter to Philemon in Philemon and verse 24. And again in Colossians 4 and verse 14. Now, we don't really know how long Demas worked with Paul. But unfortunately, we read in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 10, uh, where Paul writes there, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. 
And Paul couldn't rely on men like that to care for the Philippians like he did. He needed somebody like Timothy. Somebody that was constantly seeking the things of Jesus Christ. Verse 22. But ye know the proof of him, that as a son with the Father, he hath served with me in the gospel. Now, I've mentioned some of this uh, before already, but Timothy proved himself. He, he really did. And it's not like he set out to prove uh, anything to people, but his faithfulness to the Lord was just self-evident. I mean, you could just see it in the man. You could see that he loved the Lord and that he, that he wanted to glorify him. And so Paul didn't have to send Timothy's whole CV through to Philippi in order, in order for them to know that he was a good man to send there. They already knew it. They knew that Timothy followed Paul everywhere he went and, and he learned from him. He learned how to preach and how to teach the word, how to speak to unbelievers, how to treat them. He learned how to be a pastor and how to care for his flock. All of that and more he learned by watching Paul, by following him and, and then doing what he saw Paul did. You know, as Paul says here, as a son with the father, with his father, sorry. He, 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 it's, like a, it's like a boy watching his father working in, in the garage and, and learning how to uh, you know, tighten the bolts and do all of these things. That's how Timothy was. Verse 23. Him therefore I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. So Paul was hoping to find out some sort of news on what will happen to, to him next, uh, whether he will be released or not or, or whatever else it may be. And only then he would send Timothy, probably um, so that he could tell the Philippians what was going on with Paul. But notice that Paul is assuming that Timothy would go to Philippi if he sent him. And you know why? It's because Timothy was always willing to help Paul. He had enormous respect for this man of God and, and he was always ready to do what Paul wanted from him. I, I almost have the picture of Elisha and, and Elijah, you know, that, that, that type of relationship. Because he wasn't one of those people that seeked his own things. But like Paul, he seeked the things of Jesus Christ. So they were of one mind in this. That whatever was needed to further the gospel or to edify the saints, they were willing to do. Remember um, chapter 1 and verse 1? where we said they were both willing servants of Jesus Christ. And if Paul needed Timothy to be somewhere where he couldn't be himself, well, Timothy was willing to go. And so, Paul knew that Timothy would be willing to travel to, all the way to Philippi in order to find out on Paul's behalf how it was going with the Philippians. Verse 24. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. So Paul was looking forward to going to see the Philippians himself, but he knew that it would take some time. So much so, as I pointed out earlier, that there would be time for Timothy to get there, stay with them for a little while, and even come back again before Paul was even able to leave. But I want you to see here that he says that he trusts in the Lord that he would go to them. And that's important, because Paul knew that him going to them was always subject to the will of God. 
I think a good cross-reference for that is James chapter 4. Let's just turn there for a moment. James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And verse 13. James 4 and verse 13. Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city... And continue there a year, and buy and sell, and get gain, whereas ye know not what, what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, and then vanisheth away. For, for that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live, and do this or that. Now, by the way, that's your attendance code for tonight. James chapter 4 and verse 15. James 4 and verse 15. Now, Paul really believed that God is the only one that knows what is going to happen in the future. And he trusted him for that. I think most people actually found that out this year, that we are not able to determine the future. Uh, this lockdown and everything around it caught everybody by surprise. Nobody expected this. Everybody had plans of, oh, I'll be working this long, and I'll, I'll be taking leave on these days, and this and that. And lockdown hit. You know, and uh, yeah, and everybody was forced to stay at home. And I think that that was the least of the sacrifices that some people had to make, was just staying at home. But I hope that we all learn from this. I hope that we stop to put so much stock into our own plans and, and rather trust the Lord for the future. And that's James's point in James chapter 4. We should not be boasting in our own plans and in our own abilities to make things happen. But we should rather trust in the Lord. And that is the example that Paul is sitting here. Let's go to verse 25, chapter 2, and verse 25. Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and companion in labor, and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and he that ministered to my wants. So Paul decided to send Epaphroditus to the Philippians first, before even sending Timothy. And he calls them these three very special titles. Look at verse 25 again. Yet I suppose it necessary to send to Epaphroditus, my brother. Now, of course, they were first and foremost brothers in Christ, along uh, with everybody else that was saved by Christ. But I think that this title is a little more uh, personal than that. It looks like Paul and Epaphroditus developed a very close, intimate relationship, which also makes it very appropriate then to call him his brother. Look at the, the, the next one. He says, and companion in labor. He's my companion in labor. So they were not only brothers in Christ with a very close bond between them, but they also worked together to spread the gospel. Now, that would, of course, um, also strengthen the friendship. I'll tell you this, that some of the most meaningful friendships that I've at least ever made were because of this. Because those friends and I shared this thing in common, that we wanted to spread the gospel. And, and these are the type of friendships where you don't necessarily see each other every day. But when you do, it seems as if you pick up right where you left off, you know, a year or some years ago. 
So if you want to make some good friends, folks, be a laborer for Christ and seek out those other laborers for Christ. And you, and you will definitely have a connection there. But Paul also calls Epaphroditus uh, his fellow soldier because both Paul and Epaphroditus were spiritual warriors uh, placed in the service for Christ. And they served him together in the face of common spiritual enemies. And lastly, Paul says, um, but your messenger, your messenger, he's referring to the Philippians. And, and that is because Epaphroditus was sent out by the Philippians to deliver a message to Paul along with some other gifts, uh, which we read about in chapter 4. And then Epaphroditus stayed a little while so that he could minister to Paul's needs. But now Paul is sending him back with this epistle in hand. Verse 26. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that ye had heard that he had been sick. Now this is a little strange. You know, we would rather expect the church to be full of heaviness because Epaphroditus was sick. But instead, Paul says that Epaphroditus was full of heaviness, not because he was sick, mind you, but rather because the church heard that he was sick. Epaphroditus knew that, that they would be worrying about him. They perhaps thought that, that he might die and um, they might not get a chance to see him again. You know, like we read about uh, when, when Paul greeted the, the Ephesians in the book of Acts. And that's how much they loved him. But he didn't want to be a burden to them. And, and the fact that he was heavy hearted about them knowing that he was sick just shows how much he loved them as well. You know, if you love somebody, you don't want them to be worried about anything um, and you don't want them to worry about you. He was not looking on his own things, but rather on the things of others. Exactly what Paul was just instructing the Philippians to do in, in chapter 2 and verse 4. Verse 27, For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So Paul is confirming that uh, Epaphroditus was sick, but he, he didn't just have the sniffles, you know. But <laughs> whatever this sickness was, it really was serious because he almost died of it. Now notice that, that Paul says that God had mercy on him. And that's why he got better again, because God had mercy on him. Now I say that uh, and I emphasize that because there are people going around and telling Christians that it is their divine right to be healthy. And they say that because you are in Christ, you will never get sick. And of course, if you actually do get sick, well, then there's probably something wrong with your faith. Folks, these people are liars. They're liars. There is no such promise in the Bible that, that you would have perfect health if you are saved. Now, we have an entire lesson on healing and, and, and these things in our discipleship course. So I won't go into depth um, in this right now. But I do want to point out that Epaphroditus was sick and he almost died of it. Don't you think that it, if it was God's will for every believer not to ever get sick, that Epaphroditus should not have been sick? <laughs> Perhaps something was wrong with his faith, right? Or maybe that is why he got sick. He just didn't have enough faith. Well, not really. Paul says in verse 30, and we'll get there shortly, 
But Epaphroditus got sick because he was working for Christ. There was nothing wrong with his faith. He got sick because he caught some bug or, or maybe got hurt or whatever. But folks, please don't, don't let anyone ever tell you that Christians are not supposed to get sick. We do get sick. And you know what? We do die. That is just the normal course of this flesh. But Paul says that, that God had mercy on Epaphroditus and, and he got better. And this was not only mercy for Epaphroditus, but also for Paul. You see, Paul was already going through a lot of stuff. And, and we've talked about some of that during these lessons. And that is the sorrow that he is talking about. And of course, knowing that Epaphroditus was so sick, uh, also filled him with, with some sorrow. And then if he died... Paul would have had sorrow upon sorrow. The last thing he needed with everything else that was going on was for this beloved brother to die. Because even though we rejoice in the fact that fellow believers go on to be with Christ when they die, we are also filled with sorrow because they died. I mean, even Jesus wept um, at the grave of Lazarus moments before he even raised him from the dead. But it is the promise that we have from God that comforts us. The promise that everyone who is in Christ will be with Him as soon as they die. And we will see them again when we are gathered together with them at the feet of Jesus. Verse 28. I sent Him therefore the more carefully that when you see Him again, ye may rejoice and that I may be the less sorrowful. Now, to see Epaphroditus again would have filled the Philippian church with joy, especially because they were so worried about him. And it, it would actually cheer Paul up a little bit just to hear that Epaphroditus uh, arrived safely at Philippi, uh, knowing that Epaphroditus longed for them so much. Verse 29, Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation. So, thank God for allowing him to return safely. And hold him in reputation. I mean, give him the honor and respect he deserves. Why? Well, verse 30. Because for the work of Christ, he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. This man was totally devoted to Christ. And he got sick and he almost died because he served Christ. He didn't worry about his own life, but... He was looking on the things of others once again. All right, verse 4 in the same chapter. And we don't read it here, but he probably pushed through the sickness a little bit until he wasn't able to go on anymore. He had to do it because the Philippians weren't there to be able to do anything for Paul at that time. Their service was lacking, Paul says. Now, Paul was not blaming the Philippians for this. Okay, He, he just points out the fact that that. Epaphroditus worked to make up for what was lacking from the Philippians. And folks, sometimes it just works out that way. Sometimes there is work to be done in the ministry and nobody else is either able or willing to help out. But the work still needs to be done. We still need to uh, glorify Christ. We still need to spread the gospel and all of these things. So what do you do then? <laughs> do you just refuse to do it? Or do you make the necessary sacrifices so that the work of Christ can go on? And that's a choice that 
every believer should make for themselves. But I'll tell you that the sacrifices are worth it. They really are. Now, sure, not everybody will need to make the same kind of sacrifices. And I won't even begin to speculate on what sacrifices will be required of you or, or uh, may be required or what, what you have already had to be or already had to do. I won't speculate on that, but at some point, if you are trying to work for the Lord and trying to love other believers, some sacrifices will be required of you. And that then brings us to chapter 3. Now, let's just look at the outline here. In chapter 3 and verse 1 to 3, uh, Paul gives a warning. Beware of dogs. Uh, he warns them of false teachers. And um, then in verse 4 to 11, he says that he has no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. Verse 12 to 16, he's pressing toward the mark. He's pressing towards his goal. Verse 17 to 21, he's looking towards heaven. And that's the outline for, for this chapter. I'll just give you a moment. All right. So let's read verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. So Paul is turning a corner here, and, and that's why he says, finally. <laughs> but he's definitely not done with this book yet, all right, or with this letter yet, since we've only reached the halfway point of this book. But he says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And that is the greater theme of this book, to rejoice in the Lord. Not in your bank account, or in your friends, or in your circumstances, or in anything else. Because all of those things change over time. But we can rejoice in the Lord. Of everything and everyone else in this universe, He is the one constant. He always loves His children. He always cares for them. He always comforts them. He's always the same. You see, this joy that Paul is, is speaking about here is actually one of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and verse 22. And we should not confuse it with happiness. Okay, Joy and happiness are actually two different things. Happiness is a feeling that comes over you whenever something happens that, that excites you. But whenever something bad happens or your circumstances change for the worst, well, Happiness is the first emotion to actually leave. But biblical joy is something else. It is the result of trusting God and, and believing His promises for the future. And that's why Paul says to rejoice in the Lord. We know what we have in Him. We know what lies ahead because He told us. <laughs> we know that someday, not too long from now, He's going to come and take us away from all of this. So to rejoice in Him is, is almost synonymous with trusting in Him. And Paul goes on to say, To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. So Paul is going to repeat something that he told them before. And he probably taught them the things that he is about to say uh, while he was still with them at Philippi. And he's going to go on and he's going to warn them against false teachers. And so he doesn't mind to warn them again because it is safer for them. 
you know, I mind my, uh, or I warn my children several times about cars coming when we need to cross the road or, or whatever danger there is. <laughs> you know, that it's just safer that way. You see, there has always been false teachers claiming that you can receive sal- that you can receive salvation by doing all sorts of rituals or or keeping a bunch of rules. And Paul doesn't beat around the bush when he calls them out on it either. Look at verse 2. Beware of dogs. <laughs> Beware of dogs. You know, during this time, dogs were wild scavengers that roamed on the streets. And we, we still see that today. You know, those wild, filthy dogs that walk around looking for food, you know. And, and, and you don't really want to approach that thing because you don't know if it's going to bite you because it's not used to people or whatever. And the Jews like to refer to the Gentiles as dogs because they saw them as a bunch of filthy animals. But now Paul turns that around and he calls those false teachers dogs because they are just as filthy and dangerous as those dogs walking around on the streets. And so, and so are all the false teachers that want to teach you that you can be saved by works. He continues, Beware of evil workers. These false teachers that pride themselves in their good works and therefore think that they are righteous are actually quite the opposite. So Paul describes them as evil workers. Because if you think that your salvation is dependent on anything that you do, it actually means that you move the focus away from Jesus and you put it on yourself. And by doing that, you are in effect... Uh, spitting in God's face and telling him that you don't need his son. Uh, That the enormous sacrifice that Jesus made by humbling himself and dying on a cross for you is worthless. And folks, that is the worst kind of evil. He continues, he says, beware of the concision. Beware of the concision. Now, this word concision looks a little bit strange, I know. But it's just another way of saying circumcision. And you can actually get it from it. You know, it sounds very similar. And by saying this, Paul makes it clear what kind of false teachers he's talking about. They were the Judaizers, you know, and as the name suggests, they were going around and and trying to make every Christian Jewish. They taught that faith in Christ was not enough to be saved. You also needed to keep the law of Moses. And with that, of course, comes the requirement of being circumcised. And circumcision uh, has actually always been a sign of the covenant between God and the Jewish people. So it's very central to their faith. And you can read in in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 11 where God commands Abraham to do it. And, And then later on in that same chapter, he says that every male that is not circumcised has broken the covenant with God. And so, like I said, this, this has always been essential, uh, to the Jews. But after the cross of Christ, this physical circumcision was no longer necessary. But these people kept on spreading the lies that Jesus alone is not enough to save you. And nowadays, we don't call these people Judaizers anymore. Uh, I think we should, you know. But we refer to them as the Hebrew Roots Movement. You know, uh, because, but that's essentially the same thing. And it's a false gospel, folks. It is false. Look at verse 3. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit 
and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, we need to read this verse carefully because many people stop right there before the first comma where it says, for we are the circumcision. We don't need to be physically circumcised. And Paul makes this clear in this verse. In Colossians uh, 2 and verse 11, we read that we are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Our circumcision is not made with hands. We have circumcised hearts. It is, it is a spiritual circumcision. We don't have to perform all sorts of rituals or, or ceremonies to worship God. We worship Him in the Spirit, as Paul says here. In 2 Corinthians 3, at verse 6, we read that we are not ministers of the letter of the law, but of the Spirit. So we should not be going around and giving people a list of laws to maintain. Paul says here, we rejoice in Christ Jesus, because He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the one that, that fulfilled the law for us. And so Paul says that, we have no confidence in the flesh. None. The flesh is sinful and nothing we do to it can make us deserving of salvation. We don't want or we don't have any physical circumcision or sign because we don't need it. We put our faith and our trust alone in Christ to be saved. Only in Christ. Verse 4. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh... If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof, he might trust in the flesh, I more. <laughs> so because these Judaizers claim that certain rituals and ceremonies of Judaism is necessary for salvation, he's going to give them his own credentials here. And if these things that Paul mentions here could, could save anyone, well then Paul would have been the most saved of all of them. Now, I just want you to understand that Paul is not listing out his credentials here in order to boast about them or, or to make anyone think more highly about him. He is doing it for a specific purpose, and that is to counter these foolish claims that these Judaizers made. That, you know, the, the claims that the works of the flesh is necessary to save you. Verse 5, he says, Circumcised the eighth day. So, I love that Paul begins with the fact that he was circumcised on, on the eighth day. Because, like I said, that was a big deal to the Jews and also to the Judaizers. Paul's, Paul was a Jew since he was born. And, and he followed all of the Jewish rituals since the very beginning of, of his life. He says, of the stock of Israel. So, Paul was the real deal. He was not some Gentile that got converted to Judaism. But he was actually a direct descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, the Jews really relied on, on a heritage like that for salvation, along with circumcision. And Paul had both of those. He says, of the tribe of Benjamin. <laughs> so, at the time that Paul wrote this, many Jews could not actually trace back their, their tribal lines to, to know which tribe they belonged to. Because there has just been so much intermarriage across tribal lines. But Paul could still trace back his heritage to the tribe of Benjamin, which of course elevated him above many of the Judaizers. He says 
is an Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Hebrew from both his father and his mother's side. Not like some others who, who had perhaps Hebrew mothers and Gentile fathers, you know, like Timothy. And so he was taught the Hebrew culture and all of the traditions and all of that, and he maintained it throughout his life. He says, as touching the law, a Pharisee. Now, to be a Pharisee was considered to be the highest level of devout Judaism. These guys were extremely legalistic. We read a lot about them in the Gospels. And they were zealous to apply the law of Moses to every part of their life. And in so doing, they, they expanded on the law and they created this very complex system of works righteousness. And Jesus actually called, him, uh, called them out on it. Uh, and he, says, he said that they used this system of theirs to replace the law. And so if the Judaizers wanted to say that you have to keep the law to be saved, well, Paul took it to the extreme by becoming a Pharisee. Verse 6, he says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. So because of Paul's love for Judaism before he got saved, he hated the church. And because of his zeal for Judaism, <coughs> he heavily persecuted the church. When Paul was speaking in his own defense before Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, he said there in verse 9 to 11, I, I'm just going to read it for you. I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Of course, this was before he was saved. Which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints that I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them oft in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. So, Paul proved once again that he was better a better Jew than these Judaizers. You know, the Judaizers only preached um, to the people of the church to try and convince them of their teachings. Paul went so far as to persecute the church. Uh, for that. He says, as touching the law, uh, a Pharisee, oh sorry, no, verse 6, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul followed the entire law and as such, nobody could blame him of unrighteousness. Now of course he did sin, and but whatever he did, uh, whenever he did, he would go on to do the appropriate rituals or make the right sacrifices as required by the law uh, to make up for his sin. Verse 7, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. This just illustrates the amazing change that happened in Paul after he got saved. Before, he thought that all of those things that he did counted in his favor, you know, for salvation. But after he met Jesus, he realized that he had everything backwards and that those things actually turned out to be a loss to him. It's not like he thought that the things he did before were, God, were good and Jesus was just better than that. Instead, he saw that it was all bad. All of those things were bad and Christ is good. He saw that none of those things could save him or could even help him to be saved. Only Jesus could save him. And I've, I've seen it so many times in people where 
just like Paul did before he got saved, they rather rely on their own accomplishments to save them rather than Jesus alone. Paul thought that circumcision helped, just like many people rely on their religious ceremonies or rituals to save them. Things like, you know, baptism, uh, whether it is infant baptism or not. But folks, those things can't save you. Paul thought that it helped being of the stock of Israel, like he said. You know, just like many people think that their racial or their cultural heritage can, can somehow save them. But it can't. The same goes for your family status or your religious accomplishments, whether you are some theological scholar, a pastor, a priest, or anything like that. Those things or accomplishments can't save you. It's happened quite a lot, actually, that I ask people if they are going to heaven when they die, and they also answer with something like, well, I'm a pastor, <laughs> or my dad is a pastor. Okay, but are you going to heaven when you die? You didn't answer the question. Folks, those things don't save you. It doesn't matter how dedicated you are to your religious service. That does not save you. Did you know that even being part of this Bible school and passing it with flying colors does not save you? Even keeping the law that God gave to Moses is not able to save you. In fact, you can't keep it. None of the people that I met that claim that you need to keep the law of God actually keep every single law. You know, they mostly focus on on issues such as when the Sabbath is and that you should not eat pork or shellfish and so on. But they don't keep all of the law because they can't. You know, in Galatians 3 and verse 10, we read there, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You have to do everything that the law says. In Galatians 3 and verse 11, he goes on to say, But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith. You can only be saved by faith in Christ. That's it. And that is Paul's point here, that, that he realized that. And that all of those other accomplishments that he had was useless to save him. Verse 8. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. So in verse 7, he counted, all right, you can, you can see it there in verse 7, those I counted loss for Christ. That's past tense. So that's all of his previous accomplishments. He counts them as loss. And now he says, I count all things but loss. That's present tense. That is, all of his accomplishments that he may have even in the present and in the future, well, he counts it all as loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ his Lord. His aim is to know Jesus. Now, this knowledge that he is talking about is, is not just theory, right? He wants his knowledge of Christ to go beyond just theoretical knowledge. He, he is talking about knowing Jesus as a person, not just knowing about Jesus. All right, there's a difference there. 
Many people know about Jesus. I mean, uh, many unbelievers know about Him. But they don't know Him. Folks, as Christians, we have the opportunity to know our Lord. Not just to, to know about Him. Not just to learn these things in Bible school and so on. We get to know Him. And we get to know Him through His Word. Through prayer and, and through life. Didn't He say that, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world? He wants you to know Him. He's with you always. And so Paul is saying that, that I gave everything up in order to be saved, and I continue to count all of my earthly accomplishments that people might think is great as loss in order to get to know Christ better. He says there, For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but done, that I may win Christ. So even though his earthly accomplishments might seem great in the eyes of men, Paul counts it all as a big pile of dung. And it's great that he uses such a, such a strong term for this. Because all of your efforts to somehow achieve the salvation of your soul is just a big pile of dung. It's worthless. It's less than worthless. And that's his point. He sees all of his efforts as worthless so that he may win Christ. Verse 9 and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. To be found in Christ is the same thing as saying to be saved. <laughs> you, may, you know, many people have their own lists of things that they try to do and that they rely on to make them righteous. They think it would, just like Paul did. And that's his point. That your own righteousness is useless to save you. It may impress the people around you, but, but it doesn't impress God. And it doesn't pay for your sins. You need the righteousness of God applied to you to be saved. And the only way to receive that righteousness is by faith in Christ. We read in Romans chapter 3, verse 21... But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. That's verse 22 in that same chapter. Look at verse 10. That I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable, Unto his death. So Paul's goals have changed after he got saved. Before, he did all he can to achieve his own personal righteousness. But after he met with Christ and, and realized that his own righteousness is useless, he got some new goals. He wanted to know Christ, to know more about him and to grow in his relationship with him. He wanted to know the power of his resurrection. Now, and that is the same power that saved him, that sanctified him, and that will raise him again from the dead one day. And lastly, Paul says that he wanted to know uh, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. That is how much he wanted to be like Christ. Even if it meant innocently suffering like him, 
even to the point of death, Paul knew that standing up and preaching Christ would bring persecution with it. I mean, he was even experiencing it while reading the, or, or while writing this epistle. And he says that he's ready for that. He wants to have the fellowship of the Lord's sufferings. Now, we looked at this when we went through chapter 1, but don't you think that it's interesting that he uses this word fellowship? He, he wants the fellowship of his sufferings. That, that means to do something together, right? So even if he has to suffer for the sake of Christ and his gospel, he's not alone. Jesus has already experienced that suffering, and so he's, he is even able to comfort every believer that is going through it. He shares that suffering with you. It is, it is a fellowship. Verse 11, If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. So, he is not saying here that he wants to do those things in, uh, that he mentioned back in verse 10 so that he can be a part of the resurrection. Okay, It instead expresses his confidence that he will be a part of the resurrection of the dead. And that's a wonderful promise that, that we as believers can look forward to, folks. Even if we die, we will be raised again from the dead uh, at the rapture. When, when, when Christ comes to take his bride away. And that is such a great promise. And, and, and it's so great a promise that Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that we should comfort each other with this truth. And so Paul is determined to continue to forsake everything and to follow after Christ, even to death, if, if that is what's required, even unto the resurrection. Amen. I think let's let's stop there for tonight. I see it is seven o'clock right now, so we've made great time tonight. Um, yeah, let's let's just bow our heads and and we can pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for what you've done for us. Thank you, Lord, that we can know that none of our works can save us, Lord, because um, I think when we think about that, we only think about our good works. We, we tend to ignore the bad works. And there are so many sinful things that I know all of us have done. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace and your mercy that you came, that you've sacrificed yourself for us, Lord, that you rose again from the dead and that we can be saved in you right now, even right now, and that you are with us, Lord, even unto the end of the world. Oh, Lord, you've given us so many great things from your word. And, Lord, thank you for what we could do tonight. Thank you that we could go through this, um, well, two halves of, of chapters, Lord. Lord, thank you that we have this privilege um, to be able to do this. And we ask that you will please bless this in our hearts. Make us fruitful for you, Lord. And help us to reach more people with your glorious gospel. We praise your name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, everybody. Um, I'll see you again next week.